I have a boy of five years old. His face is fair and fresh to see. His limbs are cast in beauty's mold, and dearly he loves me. Welcome to another episode of Sunday Morning Poetry on the Troubadour Podcast. Today we will be reading and exploring Anecdote for Fathers, Showing How the Art of Lying May Be Taught, by William Wordsworth. Now, in this episode and in this particular poem, I think, I, I hope you'll see how very simple language in an imaginative way about an actual incident can be, you know, an, actu- an actual event that happened to, to uh, Wordsworth can be used to convey a deep moral meaning. Now, in this case, he's showing how the, you know, a, an incident that he had with his friend Montagu, I think that's how you pronounce his name, it's M-O-N-T-A-G-U, so Montagu is how I'm pronouncing it, how his friend's son, who is living with William Wordsworth and being educated by William Wordsworth at this moment, how he has an incident with William Wordsworth that teaches William something about humanity, psychology, young childhood, child rearing, and more. Now, I think this is a mistake that a lot of people make. I was a teacher and I made this mistake and I saw parents making this mistake and I see it all the time. I see it when we ask kids questions like, what do you think about Christianity? What should we do about China? How should we solve the environmental problems in our country or in the world? How can we fix the world's problems? Asking certain questions like that, or even tinier questions like, what about, what do you think about recycling? How that is a completely erroneous, bad thing to ask a young child. And in fact, as he uh, cleverly, and again, this is such a subtle, simple poem, but when you really look at it, you see that there's something profound going on in, you know, within the lines or, or within the broader context. So one of the things I'm going to do is I'm going to read this short poem once without giving you any kind of um, background that w- it was made available by Wordsworth in a note. And then I'm going to read it, and then I'm going to explain what that note is, and then I'll just read it again, and we can go through it. So it's a pretty short poem, but I want you to kind of get the full force of it by itself and see if it makes any sense to you, which I think it will make a little bit of sense, and then we'll explore it with an, an, a deeper understanding of the two locations. So he's going to mention two locations, Kilv's Delightful Shore and Liswin Farm. So those are the two, you know, Kilv's smooth shore by the green sea or here at the Liswin's farm. So he's going to be asking the kid, um, which does he prefer? Which place, which location does he prefer? And he's going to want, the father's going to want reasons for this. So you'll see it. It's an interesting, you know, very simple question. It's not a deep question in this case, but it, it's very similar in, in the idea of asking a child a question that he's not really interested in answering and doesn't really care to answer. And yet the father pushes and wants an answer for whatever reason. Okay, um, so we're going to go through this, like I said, once, and then we'll, um, I'll give you the anecdote or the uh, background. Anecdote for fathers, showing how, how the art of lying may be taught. I have a boy of five years old. His face is fair and fresh to see. 
His limbs are cast in beauty's mold, and dearly he loves me. One morn we strolled on our dry walk, our quiet home all few, full in view, and held such intermitted talk as we are wont to do. My thoughts on former pleasures ran, I thought of Kilve's delightful shore, our pleasant home when spring began, a long, long year before. A day it was when I could bear some fond regrets to entertain, with so much happiness to spare, I could not feel a pain. The green earth echoed to the feet of lambs that bounded through the glade, from shade to sunshine, and as feet fleet from sunshine back to shade. Birds warbled round me, and each trace of inward sadness had its charm. Kilve, thought I, was a favored place, and so is Liswin Farm. My boy beside me tripped, so slim and graceful in his rustic dress, and, as we talked, I questioned him in very idleness. Now tell me, had you rather be, I said, and took him by the arm, on Kilve's smooth shore by the sea, or here at Liswin Farm? In careless mood he looked at me, while still I held him by the arm, and said, at Kilve I'd rather be than here at Liswin Farm. Now, little Edward, say why so. My little Edward, tell me why. I cannot tell, I do not know, why this is strange, said I. For here at woods, hills smooth and warm, there surely must some reason be why you would change sweet Liswin farm for Kilve by the green sea. At this my boy hung down his head. He blushed with shame, nor made reply. And three times to the child I said, Why, Edward, tell me why? His head he raised, there was in sight, It caught his eye, he saw it plain, Upon the housetop glittering bright, A broad and gilded vein. Then did the boy his tongue unlock, And eased his mind with his this reply, At Kilve there was no weathercock, And that's the reason why. Oh, dearest, dearest boy, my heart for better lore would seldom yearn, could I but teach the hundredth part of what from thee I learn. Okay, now the little bit of a, the note that he gives at the, um, I put it here at the bottom if you're watching on Facebook, YouTube, or troubadourmag.com, is actually, I think, it, helpful in understanding the poem, although not necessary. So it's helpful, but not necessary. And I'll kind of show you why I think it's not necessary. It's included within the poem, I think, is sufficient information to convey the, the, um, the morality, the, the conclusion, right? So at the very end, the last stanza that Wordsworth says is he says, my heart for better lore, you know, what he learned, would seldom yearn, could I but teach the hundredth part of what from thee I learned. So from lore, which are like stories that you tell, like the lore of your past that has a moral lesson or some kind of lesson involved in it. My heart for better stories from the past would seldom, I wouldn't yearn for any of those stories in the past. Could I but teach the hundredth part of what from thee I learned? So if he could just teach a little bit from what he learned from his son, he wouldn't care about all the millions of stories from which he supposedly have has learned from. Now there's a... um. There is a um, famous document 
by Rousseau about learning from, you know, children and the how children should be raised in a state of nature. And this was a dominant idea at this time. And I think the word, the romantics kind of latched onto that. And there's a reason why they did. And there's one thing I wanted to convey before I read this note or went into the note is one of the things the romantics were really fighting against, particularly Wordsworth and Coleridge, but all the romantics was this idea of a preconceived rational um, idea behind something. And let me give you an example um, that I may use in the future again. And because it's, I think a really good example is that Wordsworth um, to make money occasionally would write travelogues. So he was basically a, uh, what we would call today, like a travel blogger, right? So he wrote, you know, travel, you know, things about how to, where to go, where to, you know, he would travel around in his youth and say, go to these places and he'd write about it and then publish it and get paid for it. And then more importantly, um, at this time or a few, several years later, I should say, he wrote one about the Lake Districts. And one of the things that I think is very revealing is that um, as many very independent minded writers experience and the publishers experience is he was supposed to write some simple little um, travel log about this area, where to go and how to more importantly, how to, you know, see the, the beauty of that, that area. And he did a little bit of that, but he also went on tirades about how other travel writers were writing and that really pissed him off. And I can sympathize with this. Like, I think there's a lot of flaws with today, the way travel, travel writers write and the way travel uh, bloggers and videographers, you know, create content. And, and the, there is problems to that, I think, actually. But what his problem was is very important for our purposes. And I think for life. So what he mentioned, just as his, one of his grand examples or, or simple examples, I should say. The way that normal travel writers wrote about something like a waterfall was that they would say its beauty is in its grandeur, right? Like the grandeur equals beauty, beauty equals grandeur. And so the more big and massive and powerful and swelling was the waterfall, the more beautiful. So therefore, when all the travel writers or when all the readers went to those locations, one, thing that uh, Wordsworth would mention is one, they were looking at down at their books rather than really exploring with their eyes nature, right? They didn't know how to view. They saw, but could not observe as um, Sherlock Holmes would say. So that's one problem. And we kind of can sympathize with this today when we have people, I don't have my phone in front of me. We have people like glaring down at their phones. Wordsworth is actually saying something very similar about people looking down at the words on a page rather than actually at the thing that they're reading about, right? And he would see this in the lake district where he lived in the, the area where there's these beautiful lakes and there's some waterfalls in, in nearby areas. And um, so that, that's one thing is they were distracted um, by, by this view, this preconceived notion of what is beauty. In the case of waterfalls, this is just one example among everything. The preconceived idea was that beauty is grandeur. So the bigger, the more swell, that means the only time that it's really beautiful and that, you know, if I was like some, wanted to sound like I was cosmopolitan or, or this man of the world, I would say, oh yes, I went to this uh, lake place and, oh, there was this waterfall over there, but it, di it didn't have the swell that I thought it would. It was a very tinkly little thing that, you know, went by. It was just a few droplets. Was all it was, right. And so I would sound very 
And then people would shake their head. Oh yeah, that's beautiful. You're right. That's not. And, and they have this preconceived notion and that's what they're agreeing to. And Wordsworth and the romantics were like, no, <laughs> no, you need to use your own reasoning faculty. You need to observe and integrate through the, the faculty of imagination into your own thoughts and conclusions. And there are now, they, they also believe that there was a way in which to do this, that there wasn't, it wasn't subjective that everybody had their own experience and that's okay, but it had to be filtered through your eyes, your ears, your mouth, your, like your senses, not a preconceived rational beauty equals grandeur, like very broad abstraction, right? So they were uh, rejecting all of that and they were very annoyed by that. And instead what they did was they, um, you know, so what he would say, for instance, in this example of the waterfall is he would say, well, if you think that beauty is grandeur when it comes to waterfalls, well, one problem you're going to run into is that you're only going to find the beauty in that natural resource when there is a melt, right? When there's, there's a surge from like melting of the mountains that flow into that, that river and that go into that waterfall, that's the only time of the year. You, so what about, you know, summer? What about like, um, before the melt and it's much more calm. And then he writes this beautiful description of how a very calm, like the difference between a calm waterfall and a big waterfall is one thing you get is a equality or a, you get more of the parts, you know, um, equaling into a harmonious whole. So when a big waterfall comes in, it like disrupts the whole lake around it. And so it's like ripples and it's all foamy and it's big and powerful, of course. And that's, you know, part of what people thought was beautiful, but what you miss is the serenity of the lake. So when it comes down, there's this, you know, lake underneath it. And he writes this very beautiful description of how it reflects the waterfall itself, how it reflects the stars, the mountains, the green, you know, think about those pictures that take, if you've ever seen those photos that take a picture of, um, you know, a lake that reflects the mountains around it. He's saying that when you get the big waterfall with the massive swell, it's not as beautiful, right? Or it's, it's not necessarily, that's one form of beauty is a better way of putting it. Like that's one thing that you could see is that kind of grandeur and power and the, the big swell. There's a, there's a beauty in that, but that's not the only beauty. And he's saying that the way to look at nature is to look at it as it is. And it's our job not to preconceive and impose our views on nature, but our job is to look at nature and then come up with what is the beauty in it. So that's a fundamental shift in the way that people were thinking at this time. And this is an important shift. Now, I think, unfortunately, we no longer have that at all. I think that is completely dead in our society. And it's one of the reasons why I'm so passionate about getting the romantics into your mind, into your consciousness, because it's so critical to learn the differences between um, that kind of preconceived thoughtfulness and actual thoughtfulness where you're actually thinking for yourself, you're using your eyes and you're, you know, thinking about, well, how does this fit into the context of what's going on right here? How do these images that are going through my mind integrate into something else? How can I use my imagination to make it more interesting? That's how the romantics thought and experienced the world. It's a completely different way of experiencing the world. Okay, so I wanted to talk about that because one of the things that's going on in Anecdote for Fathers here is that the preconceived notion of the father, he's putting that on this five-year-old. 
And that's something I see all the time. I think parents do this. I think this is the worst thing parents can do. And I, I understand it's very easy to criticize parents when you're not a parent. I get that. But stop doing that nonetheless. And or at least recognize it. I mean, I think that the cure is to everyone's going to do this to some degree. It's almost impossible not to. But I think the cure is to read poems like this and understand what is going on and what uh, Wordsworth is trying to say to you and the lesson you can learn from a kid. So what is the lesson? So one, one thing I'll, I'll read this note now, cause we're going to talk about, I'm going to read the poem again real quick, but I want you to get a sense for how he's imposing his ideas on this child without even recognizing that that's what he's doing. Right. He, he just wants something from the kid and he doesn't know how to um, express it. So in the note, uh, I don't know if I'll read the whole thing, but basically this is a, a poem that, or a, a, an, an anecdote by Wordsworth that happened when his the a son of his friend Basil Montague, who had been two or three years under his care, so and, and the this was suggested this idea was suggested to Wordsworth in front of a place called Alphagston, so that's a location. The name of Kilve is from a village on the Bristol Channel, about a mile from Alphagston, and the name of Liswin Farm was taken from a beautiful spot on the Wye. I don't know if that's how you pronounce it. I'm sorry about all my English mispronunciations. If you're English, hit me up and tell me how to pronounce this stuff. <laughs> um, there's only so much work I can do on these things every day. When Mr. Coleridge, my sister and I had been visiting the famous John Thelwell, who, so this is important. He, when he is thinking about this incident of Liswin farm, right? He's thinking about this whole anecdote and this whole experience he had with a man named John Thelwell, who had taken refuge from politics. So now we're already not only from nature, but Wordsworth is mentioning in this note that the narrator, me, associates political situations to this Liswin farm that the child isn't going to have. I mean, one of the things I hate more than anything in um, existence is when people say that this is a Christian child. It's not a Christian child. It's the child of Christian parents. Children do not have the ability to make metaphysical decisions about existence. They just do not have that ability. Um, okay. Um, who had taken refuge from politics and... Yeah. And after a trial of high, for high treason, with a, a view to bring up his family by the profits of agriculture which proved as unfortunate a speculation as that he had fled from. Coleridge and he had been public lecturers. So basically this guy Thelwell was brought up for high treason and had something to do with what he was doing from the profits of agriculture. I don't know the history of it exactly. Now Coleridge mingling with his politics theology from which the other uh, um, elocutionist abstained, that's Thelwell, unless it were for the sake of a sneer. The quantum community of public employment induced Thelwell to visit Coleridge at Nether Stowey, that's a location, where he fell in my way. He really was a man of extraordinary talent. So again, uh, you know, he was an affectionate husband and a good father. So Wordsworth is saying that he admires Thelwell on some level, right? There's something about him that he admires. And that's going into his poem and his question to his son, his son or to Montague's son. Though Thelwell was brought up in the city, he was truly sensible of the beauty of natural objects. It's not normal for people who brought up in the city. So again, he's admiring Thelwell. I remember once when Coleridge, he and I were seated 
together upon the turf on the brink of a stream in the most beautiful part of the most beautiful glen of Alfixton. Coleridge exclaimed, This is a place to reconcile one to all the jarrings and conflicts of the wide world. This, so this beautiful location is a place that if we brought people here, we could reconcile ourselves with all the jarring conflicts of the wild world. Nay, said Thelwell, to make one forget them all together. So there's a so Thelwell is saying something that even usurped Coleridge's claim, which Coleridge came up with this beautiful you know thing to say. He was always a, a, a wonderful conversationalist. And he said, wow, this is such a wonderful place that to come here is to reconcile all the jarring conflicts of the wide world. And Thelwell says, no, it's to forget all the conflicts of the wild world, which is just you know, something very interesting that he said, which I can sympathize with. Like, I, I just can, cannot tell you, to be perfectly honest, how rare it is to find an interesting conversationalist. It's just so rare to find somebody who has anything interesting to say. Um, the visit of this man to Coleridge was, as I believe Coleridge has related, the occasion of a spy being sent by government to watch our proceedings. So this is a whole anecdote, which maybe I'll get to at some point in the future of um, the government during the the conflict between France and uh, um, England, had, the British government had thought of Wordsworth as a spy, and so they had sent people in to actually view them. Um, you know, and but but that's a, a situation for another time. But the point is that there's all these previous conclusions and emotions and con and connections that the narrator is making that. The boy has no in, in, um, interest in, knowledge of, or care for. So this is something that we as adults just do not appreciate. And it's all the emotional connections we make to things. In this case, Liswin Farm, which has you know, this political ideology, this admiration for this father and good man, this, po this poetical situation where he, Coleridge, and um, Thelwell had this incident. There's all this stuff mashed in the, the, the brilliant brain of Wordsworth, but now he's talking to a five-year-old. And it's completely different. That five-year-old has none of those things. So let's read it with that in mind. I'm going to read a little bit faster, and then we'll break it down quickly because I don't want to spend too much time, uh, too much of your time here. Okay. I have a boy of five years old. His face is fresh and fair and fresh to see. His limbs are cast and beauty's mold, and dearly he loves me. One morn we strolled on our dry walk, our quiet home all full in view, and ha held such intermitted talk as we are wont to do. My thoughts on former pleasures ran. I thought of Kilve's delightful shore, our pleasant home when spring again began a long, long year before. A day it was when I could bear some fond regrets to entertain. With so much happiness to spare, I could not feel a pain. The green earth echoed to the feet of lambs that bounded through the glade, from shade to sunshine, and as fleet from sunshine back to shade. Birds warbled round me, and each trace of inward sadness had its charm. Kilve, thought I, was a favored place, and so is Liswin Farm. My boy beside me tripped, so slim and graceful in his rustic dress, and, as we talked, I questioned him in very idleness. Now tell me, had you rather be, I said, and took him by the arm, on Kilve's smooth shore by the green sea, or here at Liswin Farm? In careless mood, he looked at me, while still I held him by the arm, and said, at Kilve's I'd rather be than here at Liswin Farm. Now, little Edward, say why so? My little Edward, tell me why. 
I cannot tell, I do not know. Why, this is strange, said I. For here are woods, hills smooth and warm. There surely must some reason be why you would change sweet Liswin farm for Kilve by the green sea. At this, my boy hung down his head. He blushed with shame, nor made reply. And three times to the child I said, Why, Edward, tell me why? His head he raised, there was in sight. It caught his eye. He saw it plain, upon the housetop, glittering bright, a broad and gilded vein. That's a weathercock. Then did the boy his tongue unlock, and eased his mind with his reply. At Kilve there was no weathercock, and that's the reason why. Oh, dearest, dearest boy, my heart for better lore would seldom yearn. Could I but teach the hundredth part of what from thee I learn? Okay, so hopefully you gr grasp a little bit more there in what all the stuff that he's imposing. And I want to kind of point out a few things. So one, it starts off with this boy and it's pointed out that he's a five-year-old. So that's not a coincidence. It's, he's very young and his fresh is fair and his face is fair and fresh to see. His limbs are cast in beauty's mold and dearly he So it's like this picturesque little cherub. Right? It's, a, it's an innocent, not exposed to the world yet cherub. One morn we strolled on our dry walk, our quiet home. And so they're, they're walking around. They're, they're close to their home uh, or the place that they're staying. And they talked as they always do and held such intermitted talk. So not consistent, right? It's, if you talk to a child, it's not a flowing conversation where each person's interrupting to try to make their conversation more fluid or, and try to get their point across. But instead it's like, you know, Oh, look at this. That's a bird. And then the boy like looks at the bird and there's no speech for minutes because again, the boy, a boy, it's a boy, it's a five-year-old. He doesn't have the, um, uh, elocution of a fully grown poetic genius. <laughs> My thoughts on former pleasures ran. So that's important. So his thoughts, the boy doesn't have his thoughts, right? The boy, that's one of the points he's trying to make. And he doesn't have the former pleasures. He doesn't have pleasures yet. The pleasure he has is in the immediate moment. I thought of Kilve's delightful shore or our pleasant home when spring began a long, long year before. So he has thoughts of all this, you know, the, these former pleasures that he has that the boy doesn't really have. A day it was when I could bear some fond regrets to entertain. With so much happiness to spare, I could not feel a pain. So a day it was I, when I could bear. So he's talking about, oh, I remember this day in the past when I had these fond regrets that I could entertain. So not only, you know, it's, it's doubly removed. So not only does he have, you know, in the immediate moment, he can experience something that happened in the past as though it's happening now. Like that's one of the um, amazing things about memory is that you could bring forth this powerful memory and be flooded with an emotion. The boy has none of that, because he has no memories, really. The green earth echoed to the feet of lambs and bounded through the glade, from shade to sunshine, and as fleet from sunshine to ba uh, back to shade. What is that? What is he talking about? A day it was when I could bear some fond regrets to entertain. The green earth echoed to the feet. These are concrete images and emotional language that this land that we're going to find out is Liswin brings to his mind. The boy has none of that. Birds warbled around me. So again, he's talking about, oh, this is in the past. This is not happening right now. 
This is in the past. He's remembering this. And he's remembering how it brought an each trace of inward sadness. The boy doesn't have any concept that it's there's an inward sadness that is innate in the birds warbled around him me because he had no sense of this. He has not he has no experiences by which to lock down those concretes and associate them with any kind of inward sadness because he's five. Kilv thought I was a favorite place, and so was Liswin Farm. My boy beside me tripped. So that's a cute little thing. His boy, he's wearing this uh, rustic dress. I see this as like a kind of a humorous anecdote that we find of our children, right? It's like they, they, wa they wobble around. They're not, you know, they're uncertain on the earth still, right? He, my, my boy beside me tripped, so slim and graceful in his rustic dress. I, I see that as a, a kind of, um, uh, not an irony, but a, a kind of, caustic joke, right? Ah, ha, ha, how graceful in his rustic dress. And as we talked, I questioned him in very idleness. Now tell me, so this is a question, he's questioning him. Had you rather be, I said, and took him by the arm, on Kilv's smooth shore by the green sea, or here at uh, Liswin Farm? So where would you rather be, on Kilv's smooth shore, or here at Liswin Farm? Right? And for us, we know here at Liswin Farm to Wordsworth, means birds warbling, it means inward sadness, it means a favored place, it means green earth echoing, it means lambs bounding, it means shade to sunshine and as fleet from sunshine to shade, it means fond regrets, it means a whole bunch of stuff. Not to the boy. <laughs> In careless mood, he looked at me, while still I held him by the arm, and said, at Kills I'd rather be than here at Lisbon Farm. So he's in a careless mood, but he's, he's just kind of answering because that's what you're supposed to do to your father with your father. Now, little Edward, say why? So, my little Edward, tell me why. I cannot tell. I do not know. Why, this is strange, said I. So the boy doesn't know, and Wordsworth thinks it's strange that he doesn't know. I mean, it's not that strange if you know anything about five-year-olds. They don't know. Like, why do I like this? I just like it, right? They haven't developed the reasoning abilities and the, they don't have the uh, time to develop their language acuity in order to give terminology to their uh, reasoning. And often in this case, they don't have a reason, really. That's what we're going to find out. For here are woods, hills smooth and warm. There surely must some reason be why you would change sweet Liswin farm for killed by the green sea. So words are the saying, well, hey, there's woods, there's, there's smooth hills. It's beautiful and warm. And yet you want to change and, and um, you know, be by, uh, you prefer killed by the green sea. At this, my boy hung down his head. He blushed with shame. I think that's important is that when we um, impose our own views, ideas, perceptions, connections, all the, the connections that we've made over a lifetime, right? You know, if we have a belief, a deep ideological belief, for instance, that's, that's the worst part. And we impose that, we impose shame on them for not being able to articulated in the way that we can or want them to. And the worst example of this is like when a Christian imposes their view, you know, and a religious in general, but I'm picking on Christians because that's the dominant religion in our culture, but it's, it's worse in Middle East with Islam, where you beat your kids if they don't memorize the Quran properly. And you tell them to recite something and they hold their head in shame and blush with shame because they can't get you the answer that you want. So they know that they're failing. And that's what's happening here. And Wordsworth starts to realize this, and he hopes with the poem that you realize this. That's the flaw in this thing. That's a huge, huge problem. 
is to, you have made billions of emotional and um, observational connection over the course of your life, infinite amounts. The boy has made very few. He's his, his consciousness is just going online. So he has no capacity to do that yet. His head he raised, there was in sight, it caught his eye, he saw it plain, upon the housetop glittering bright, a broad and gilded vein. So he's looking for something that, um, you know, he can use as some reason. He's just looking for some answer. He doesn't know. He can't think about it. He doesn't have a memory of anything. So he's just looking around the world. That's how children experience the world. And there's something that Wordsworth admires about that. Remember when I talked about the, the waterfall, where the, the, the purpose is to look out for yourself and not have all these preconceived notions, even your own necessarily. Just kind of look at the world first before you come up with all these reasons. So it's, it's, a, an, a, it's a very, you know, focused on um, reality type of admiration. Now, I think they make mistakes, but, you know, uh, that's another discussion. Then did the boy his tongue unlock and eased his mind with this reply. At Kilv there was no weathercock, and that's the reason why. Now, as far as I can see, that's a completely <laughs> arbitrary thing. The fact that Liswin has a weathercock, but Kilv doesn't. Right? So, like, what I think um, by choosing that anecdote, Wordsworth is stressing the fact that there really is no reason that the boy does it. He's just searching for something. He saw a weather vane and he says, well, in uh, Kilv, which is where the boy wants to be, right, or, or where the boy prefers, because he was asked, which does he prefer, Kilv or Liswin? And he says, I prefer Kilv. And he says, at Kilv, there's no weathercock, and that's the reason why. Well, what does that have to do with anything? Like, the, the, as far as I can tell, there, it doesn't really mean much, like, in terms of the boy's answer. He's just searching for some answer to give the father to shut him up essentially or to, or to placate him oh dearest boy oh dearest dearest boy my heart for better lore would seldom yearn could i but teach the hundredth part of what from thee i learned what did he learn he learned i think what i've been telling you about how we impose our ideology onto children and that is an issue that's that's wrong we should not do that okay well i hope you learned something from this poem as i did um and I hope you subscribe to uh, the, the podcast. You can subscribe on Stitcher, on iTunes, on Spotify, on Overcast. I mean, wherever you go to listen to a podcast, please subscribe. This, this podcast, if you're watching it on Facebook or YouTube or TroubadourMag.com, is audio as well. And, you know, I hope you could just, I, I, I read it in such a way that, you know, I, I do it multiple times so you can get a sense for the language, even if you're not reading along. If you are reading along, I think it helps. Now, just uh, as a last thing, we have Metaphysical Mondays now. For a limited time, I'll be reading from the Metaphysical Poets um, by, uh, by, well, Metaphysical Poetry of the mostly the 1600s into the 1700s. So we'll be reading some of those and kind of exploring a lot of that poetry because that gives you a context for what Romanticism is fighting against. And here, you're going to see a lot of those preconceived notions and uh, you'll also see a lot of crazy far-fetched imagery, like a flea is premarital, you know, equivalent to premarital sex. And then, um, or as an argument for premarital sex, I should say. And um, then there is Ballad Wednesdays. I also have short stories from Edgar Allan Poe coming. So we just did a descent into the Maelstrom. And we have plenty more um, where we're going to be exploring the science fiction 
and the tales of ratiocination. And there's an important reason why we're going to be exploring those tales. So stick around, check it out. Please share it. The more you share, the more of these I can do. Um, so please share, give us ratings, do help us out. You don't have to give money, help us out by sharing stuff around and talking about it with people. Um, you know, it, I hope it's a good teaching aid. If you're a teacher, I hope if you're a homeschooler, teach it to your kids, you know, that that's kind of the goal. But my, my ultimate hope, whatever age you are, that you, you know, expand and improve your life. Even if you're 99 on, on your deathbed, expand your life through literature until next time.